0: It's been over a year now since In The Key of Q launched. In our archive, you can find over 50 interviews of queer musicians from around the world and hear their music from rap,
1: of my proclivities to, self-sabotage,
0: to country, to kiss me girl, soul and rock. These episodes are available on the main feed. You can access them via the website at inthekeyofq.com or wherever you normally listen to podcasts. This is Dan here, thanks for downloading this episode. Many thanks to our listeners who are financially supporting the podcast over at patreon.com slash in the key of Q. You are genuinely helping to keep the series in production and more importantly, to give a space for queer voices to be heard. In this episode, my guest talks about growing up a gifted musician in Essex and his journey to catchy pop via Radiohead and Rachmaninoff. He tells us his thoughts of mask for mask identities in gay culture and of embracing his inner INFJ introvert. Share your thoughts about today's episode, the pods on social media at in the key of Q or email me direct on podcast at InTheKeyofQ.com. Of course, using the hashtag QueerMusic. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, rate, and review the show on your podcast provider. All that's left to say is enjoy the episode.
1: the Sega Mega Drive and masturbating they were sort of <laughs> they, they took second they took the back seat suddenly this piano was the most amazing thing I'd ever experienced and so I just couldn't keep off it
0: hello I'm Dan Hall when I grew up I almost never heard pop songs where openly queer men sang about their truths and it made me feel invisible there were the occasional heroes like Jimmy Somerville Mark Almond and Andy Bell but in the tsunami of 1980s heteronormative pop I felt silenced But these days there are plenty of songs where I can hear openly queer men singing their truths. And this podcast is all about finding and sharing this music and speaking with the musicians who create it. Music helps us feel connected, feel heard, and know that we are not alone on our queer journey. You're listening to In the Key of Q. This week I welcome a fellow Londoner to the show. His first notable work was a 2011 composition for the Broccoli Jack Theatre, and he has since scored and sound-designed a plethora of stage and commercial compositions. In 2014, he won the Waterloo Film Festival Score Competition and has somehow found time to release two full-length albums. His most recent work is the catchy pop-bop IDWK, performed under the name Memory Flowers. I'm delighted to welcome to the microphone, Andrew M. Pisano. Andrew, hello. Hello, hi.
2: everywhere. it go.
1: Apparently, I used to have this little plug in cassette thing, and I used to sort of go around, find a plug socket and just plug in and listen to ABBA wherever I could as a four-year-old. I have no memory of this, but I'm told. Then a a Madonna obsession from about the age of seven to 10 or 11. And yeah, when the piano appeared in my house, because my sister was nagging mum and dad to get a piano she wanted to learn. And, you know, we lived in a council house. There was no money. So I think one was donated from somewhere. You know, Mm. someone was chucking one out. And when that appeared in the house, oh my God, I just couldn't keep off it. You know, the Sega Mega Drive and masturbating, they were sort of, <laughs> they, they took second, they took the back seat. Suddenly this piano was the most amazing thing I'd ever experienced. And so I just couldn't keep off it. And so I'd, I'd spend hours a day on it and it drove my sister crazy, you know, because she was, she was the one who was supposed to be learning. But I just sort of, yeah, taught myself, you know, when you just sort of press all the buttons until you figure out which ones go together and which ones don't. I think if you are... I hate the word gifted. If you are musically inclined, it just comes naturally. It's not, you know, I've had therapists in the past that have hinted that, oh, it was escapism. You know, I was escaping the world around me. That implies some sort of conscious choice or even a subconscious choice to, I'm going to do this because the world out there is scary, but I don't think that's the case. I mean, I like the idea. I love, you know, I love the psychological angle of that. But yeah, I think if you're musically inclined, you're just going to do it in the same way that if you're inclined to play video games, you're just going to find yourself constantly drawn to the Nintendo because it's the most fun you have. It's more fun than the other things you do. Therefore, you do it more than anything else. And it's the same with music. You know, listening to Madonna as, a, as an eight-year-old was more fun than watching the telly or going out and playing with... Other kids or, you know, so you end up, that ends up being what you do. We had a lodger, a Chinese student called Chung, who's still a dear family friend, who was 16, because we lived opposite um, college in Essex, in Essex. Essex boy, innit? it? And he had the True Blue album on cassette, and he had this little ghetto blaster. So I said, you know, knock on his door. Chung, can I take the of Blaster and the, and the Mod, Madonna album. And so he would let me take it. And then I used to just, yeah, sit and listen to True Blue from start to end. And then when it got to the end, you know, just start it again. I just, yeah, loved it.
0: And what appealed to you about her? Because for me, I liked the fact that she, she wasn't telling me to be something. She was simply telling me to be myself. Yeah, I don't know. I think th- th- there's quite a lot of melancholy in
1: her earlier work, isn't there? This is a theme I'm obviously going to come back to a lot, right? Like song's like Papa Don't Preach. It's a sad song. Okay, it's like gorgeously synthy and, and it's got a, a fun beat to it, but it's a sad song, you know? And, you know, early, early stuff, you know, you've got Live to Tell, beautiful ballad, love that song.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Yeah, and if you listen to the Like a Prayer album, it's full of sad songs, you know, about her divorce and stuff. It's, there's just, there's a sort of, it's not throwaway. She's become throwaway, like this sort of throwaway pop. But back then it wasn't, it had significance and it had, I mean, it was musically glorious in a way that she's not really been recently. But also, yeah, it had a sort of thematic uh, like a grandeur
0: almost. She, she wasn't afraid to tackle real subjects. My, my attention to Give to Madonna's music has waned massively, mostly because I have to get jobs and pay for things and I don't have the time to listen to music. <laughs> yeah, but I do same. wonder whether it ever got better than Like a Prayer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. For me, she's got two masterpieces. There's the Dick Tracy soundtrack, which is criminally underrated. And um, like, like a prayer, yeah, two timeless albums. I only really went as far as erotica, though. By that point, I'd sort of discovered guitar music and I started to veer off into the more sort of rock and and indie. It's funny, I became a very serious musician and I'm now, you know, at 42, much more drawn towards synthesizers and three minute pop songs. But um, I think I enjoyed the seriousness of guitar music. It was more like, you know, inverted commas, real music. And as a sort of teenager becoming a serious person, you know, transitioning into adulthood, I was more drawn to to that sort of seriousness and the complexity of it and, and whatnot. My older sister was into heavy metal, right? So she loved Metallica. So that was sort of my way in. And it was very short-lived because, you know, heavy metal isn't musical enough for me. It's not melodic enough. But, you know, on every Metallica album, there's an epic power ballad. And so I'd love the Metallica power ballads. But then, of course, it wasn't long before I discovered that there's, you know, albums full of proper guitar music you just got to look to sort of like Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots and the sort of more melodic grunge bands. You know, I wasn't so much a Nirvana fan, but Pearl Jam and, and Stone Temple Pilots and bands like that. I was just like, oh, okay, this is the best thing ever. And then when I discovered Radiohead in 93, I think, or 94, that was it. It was just like, oh my God, the world is it's different now, you know? And, and that was the end of any sort of love of straight up pop music I suppose but like I say in in my ancient years I'm I'm very much finding my way back to it you know I hear songs at the gym and I'm just like oh I love this and then I hear some sort of indie tune and I'm like oh it's all right where's the pop hook you know what I've learned in later life is that I'm just a textbook introvert. Like it's not, you know, you go through your life feeling weird and defective because you don't like the same things and and you, and you find yourself really exhausted after a couple of hours at a party and, you know, all of this textbook introvert behavior, but I, I never really understood that it was simply a personality type, you know, that's documented in, in a textbook. So you sort of go your whole life feeling like the weird one, the difficult one, defective and broken, like, uh, but actually, you know, my, my friend Michael made me do, uh, made me do that um, Myers-Briggs. And, you know, for what it, you know, whether it's worth anything or not, it's, it's a bit of fun, if nothing else. But um, I came out as INFJ, I think, which is the rare one or whatever. And so, of course, you know, as soon as having done that, because it's an online test, you know, all the algorithms are like, ah, this guy's an introvert. We're going to send him lots of videos and lots of articles about what it means to be an introvert. And so, you know, I'd click on videos on YouTube and stuff. And and it just sort of described me so, you know, I felt so seen. I was like, oh, I'm not broken and defective. I'm just a, a textbook introvert. Like it's, it was actually the most liberating thing. You know, people say labels are constricting. It was quite the opposite. It was so liberating.
0: So I was like, oh. Well, there you go. The flip side of that argument, you know, don't put labels on things that's a constraint. Yeah, the flip side of that coin is it is difficult to have discussions about things that don't have a name. Yes. And, you know, finding a label
1: can be very freeing. And like I say, you, in, because you can feel very lonely if, if you don't know that there are other people like that. But if it's got a name and you identify with that name and you find other people that also identify with that name, suddenly you've got a clan Do you know what I mean? And you're not alone anymore. So I'm actually a fan of labels.
0: So, Andrew, can you tell us what introversion actually is? I'm sure we have our preconceptions of what it means. But in reality, what is it? I suppose I've I've been encountering this term social battery.
1: And I quite like it. It basically, you know, the premise being that your social battery runs out much quicker than less introverted or more extroverted people. So, you know, if I wake up on a Saturday and I look at my diary and it's full of stuff, oh, I've got so-and-so's wedding and uh, a uh, barbecue and, uh, you know, so-and-so's leaving drinks, it just brings me nothing but sort of anxiety. Not, not an extreme panic attack or anything like that. We're talking very low-level anxiety. If I wake up and I've, I look at my diary and I've got nothing on all weekend, literally not a thing... I just feel this sort of peace and calm and serenity. And I'm just like, Oh, that is glorious. I can just do whatever the fuck I like, or whenever the fuck I like, you know, I can spend all Saturday masturbating if I want to, I can spend the whole day in the studio. I can maybe, I can maybe see people if I fancy it, call somebody up, let's
0: go for a coffee, you know, but it's that sort of empty space brings me calm. During this podcast, and in fact, just in life generally, because I'm quite loud and abouillant, I think people often think I'm an extrovert. And I did the Myers-Briggs test on the request of my friend Phil Samba, who, just a quick plug, does amazing work over at Prepster. Uh, he got me to do the test, and I came out as an INFJ. Right, boom. There you go. I'll ra- if, I've, if I had a glass, I'd raise it to you right now. <laughs> and my housemate, yeah, and my housemate
1: did as well. Oh, okay, so not, not so rare, huh? I didn't know.
2: I didn't know it would be so hard. I didn't.
1: Teach kids now. This is how I, I pay my bills. I teach piano. And um, I had an 11 year old refer to himself as gay, just so nonchalantly in one of the piano lessons. He, I think he was talking about um, sex ed at school. And he was like, oh, you know, it was all about straight people. And there was nothing about, you know, because I'm gay and there was nothing about gay people and people like me. And I was, he dropped it in so effortlessly. This kid's 11. And I was just like, oh, you glorious child, what, what a beautiful ease with, you know, that you have about your, your homosexuality. It's just a matter of fact, because, you know, that's the age we live in now. And I do think the internet saves lives, doesn't it? I know there's all that cyberbullying and whatnot, and sure, there's the flip side of the coin. But, you know, you can find your people. If I could have come home from school every day and logged on to my, you know, weird little subreddit full of queer fans of Rachmaninoff, you know, or whatever I was into as a teenager... I'd have been saved, I'd have been with my people, with my gang, but that, you know, the internet wasn't a thing in the 90s, was it? When I, when I turned about 14, 15, I got in with a crowd that I'm still, you know, dear, dear friends with to this day. And, yeah, they kind of saved my life. There wasn't another gay in the bunch, but they were just, you know, from sort of left-leaning, guardian-reading families. You know, not posh, but, yeah, just sort of socially aware families, so they were just a good, good gang, you know, and they saved my life, you know, because I, like I say, I grew up in a council house, my parents are immigrants, you know, mum watches EastEnders, dad reads The Sun, I didn't know there were other newspapers until I was, I think in my mid to late teens, you know, nobody ever thinks they're going to have a gay son, do they? No one plans that, and so, you know... If you're going to have children, you need to ask yourself: Am I okay if one of these kids is gay? And if the answer is no, don't have kids. Like because they're not your accessories. You're you're making new humans here. They have their own thing going on. They're not a carbon copy of you, and and they don't. Their existence isn't shaped by your beliefs. You know, all you can do is is rear them and nurture them. There's no great homophobia. In my family, you know, I didn't have an angry dad who shouted at the gays on the telly and, you know, there was, there were no gay slurs, but, you know, the stony silence is arguably as bad, isn't it? Like I say, what do you take away when nobody ever refers to the existence of gay people? You take away that it's shameful and that it shouldn't be talked about. And that's reinforced with every day that passes in silence of, of no mention is every bit as damaging as being told directly, you know, that you're shameful and wrong. I believe, anyway. You know, in my first therapist's chair, I've had four therapists in my time because I'm just so glamorous. And um, yeah, I sat down and I was like, look, I don't know why I'm here. I wasn't abused. I, I had quite a child, a, a charmed childhood, really. I'm sure you've got all kinds of people who've had atrocious things happen to them, and that's not me. And he said to me, 90% of the people that sit in that chair are here because of neglect. And of course, I summoned every ounce of will in the universe to not cry when he said that. So, you know, just the fact that silence, neglect, the absence of something can be just as damaging as the presence of something. Why did I- I think the representation is there now but it's too late for you and I because our psyches have gone to print you know there's no undoing it your subconscious is riddled with all of this stuff the you know the isolation and the lack of representation and that the fear and you know internal homophobia and you know your heart will always pound in your neck when you hold another man's hand in public it just always will for the rest of your life and, and you can't you can't escape that because of the time you grew up in. Like I say, your psyche has gone to print. So even if there's all this representation now, it doesn't fix it. You know, it's, it's great for the next generation and it's heartening to see the world changing. Doesn't change your psyche. Or if it does, it does it in small ways, but not in the fundamental ways that you need it to. I think for me, that's what therapy is. It's a It's a means of understanding. You know, people think when they go to therapy they're going to be cured and that there isn't, there's no cure, you know, because you're not broken. That There's no fix. You, all, all you're doing is learning to look upon yourself with compassion rather than intolerance and hatred or whatever. You know, identifying your problematic behaviours and not hating yourself for them. My best friend at school was a girl called Martha and she came out to me when we were in our last year of school, you know, A-levels, age 18. And not only that, she'd been having a two-year relationship with our other friend, Anna, who I was, I was also best friends with. And I was like, oh, well, I've got something to tell you too. And I told her, I'm gay. And yeah, she saved my life. What can I say? Somebody came up to me first and I was like, oh, well, I, I, I also have that news for you. How exciting. We're the same. You know, I don't know how long it would have taken me if, if I hadn't had that, that leg up. Once I came up to Martha, I just, I just couldn't, you know, there was a crack in the dam and it just, oh, I couldn't keep it in. Just told everyone. My friends were so awesome because they are. And like, they were just like, okay, yeah, cool. And it was relatively easy. You know, coming out at home was much harder. My sister, my older sister wasn't so okay with it. Didn't come out to my mum until I was 23. And I didn't come out to my dad until I was 34. So I left that one rather late. In one of my, my many therapy sessions, basically with my first therapist, I was suffering from psychogenic dysphonia. Which is a condition whereby you you are losing your voice. So you know, for the longest time, I thought I had nodules. I thought I had something wrong with my larynx. You know, and I went to all the specialists and I had all the cameras down my throat. And the final geezer at the ear, nose, and throat hospital in King's Cross, he just said to me, "Look, what we're looking at on the screen here is a perfectly healthy larynx. I'm going to refer you to this guy. He's a therapist." Now, I was thrilled. I was like, oh, there's another, there's another doctor. <laughs> you know? And also, you know, I've always been fascinated by psychology. So the idea of going to, you know, people have a, a stigma about therapy, don't they? Oh, I must be broken. I don't need therapy. But like, I was like excited. I was like, yeah, okay, I'll go to therapy. What I sort of gleaned in one of the sessions was that every time I've not expressed my truth, effectively my voice has been taken. And so this was the psychological process that was causing me to lose my voice. I couldn't raise or project my voice. It was turning into a whisper. And so I thought to myself, well, what's the big thing that I'm not saying? And of course, I was in my mid-30s by that point and hadn't come out to dad still. So, right, I need to come out to dad. So I had a New Year's resolution to do it. And then on the 2nd of January, boom, I did it. I was like, oh, I'm winning. I'm winning it this year, whatever year it was. And now, you know, I'm on Facebook and all my craggy old aunties and uncles in the Czech Republic and in Sardinia, where my folks are respectively from, they're all friends with me. So there's no, it's, it's not sort of only known in the immediate family. It's known in the sort of global family as well. It wasn't this little whisper anymore. But, you know, it comes and goes. It's, it's you know, it's, it's even today, you know, talking to you, it's, It's not big and bold. It's, you know, it's sort of slightly sunken and whatever. Like, I just accept it for what it is now. Some days it's big and bold and I, you know, I bellow and some days it's, it's not. Fuck it. Who cares? Like, again, just don't get anxious about it because that's only going to make it worse, right? It's only going to exacerbate it. I think I'm a little bit Asperger's. You know, and one of my therapists said that he thought I probably was as well. And, and I was like, yeah, like, that makes sense. It makes so much sense of, all, of various behaviours of mine. But I have this sort of tendency to compartmentalise. And so anything that's sort of pop production or, or full band, I will release as memory flowers. Anything that's just sort of piano and vocal, I will release as Andrew M. Pizanu. And... Then my composing work is just under my my name, Andrew Pisano. So like all the the film scores that I've done and theatre scores that I've done, you know. Look, you've got a love of 80s pop music as a kid. Then you've got a teenager who is obsessed with two things, Radiohead, which is obviously guitar, indie guitar music, right? And Rachmaninoff, which is, you know, romantic era, 20th century classical composer. And then you arrive at this point where you've got all of that you're sort of, in, you know, you're sort of imbued with all of that. You've got melodies from Rep off. You've got weird glitchy beats from Tom York and Radiohead. And you've got sort of pop hooks from Madonna and, and stuff that you loved as a kid. And so, yeah, it just all sort of big, big old melting pot, isn't it?
2: <laughs> Tell me your stories, let them exist. Turn off the spotlight for a single minute I'm angry and I am not sorry Tell me your stories, show me your worth I am the anti-matter strangled at birth I'm angry and I am not sorry Cause I'm in the dark for most of it A highly elliptical We don't need permission anymore. We don't need permission anymore. Stand back and watch us take the floor. Coming through the front door. We don't need permission anymore. We don't need permission anymore. Stand back and watch us take the floor. Coming through the front door.
1: If you can have a childlike simplicity and not be trite, that is the best art in my book because that unites the layman and the critic, you know, if, if both the layman and the critic can come out of your film or listen to your song or read your book or whatever you've done, and both unanimously love it, that is when you are a creative genius. If you're alienating one side because your music is too esoteric and the layman doesn't get it, or it's too simple and the critics just think it's fluff, you know, you have not succeeded as far as I'm concerned. So that's sort of my, my outlook you know, and if you listen to my last single, IDWK, which is such a mouthful, I Don't Want to Know is what it stands for. You know, it's it's got a 80s pop beat and synthesizers, but it changes key. You know, it modulates several times. For the musos listening, it modulates several times into different keys and, and back again and whatnot. And, you know, so it's musically has some complexity, but to, to music fans such as yourself who aren't musically trained and don't know theory, you know, it will still sound just like... Pop music, normal pop music, it won't sound esoteric or difficult. Think of a song like Take On Me by A-Ha. You know, that's chords and melody. That is glorious. It doesn't matter what the production is. That could be a guitar-y indie song. It could be synthy. It could be an acoustic ballad. It could be sine waves just playing the notes. It's still going to be moving because on a simple, bare-bones, chords and melody level, it's brilliant. It's magical. And so that's... That's kind of like my approach to writing. Find the magic in the bare bones, you know, in the dots, as they say. Andrew, what queer artist are you listening to at the moment? I have been a big Rufus Wainwright fan my whole life. You know, because he also does that thing where he marries classical music with pop music. And it's just, you know, it's the thing I was talking about. It's complex, but it's also
0: accessible. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's, it's such good music. Do you think it's important for us as gay men to hear our stories in music? Do you think it's important for audiences to hear your stuff and go, that is a gay man singing? Yes. No.
1: No. I'm going to go with no. I, I gave you two answers there and I'm going to go with no. No, because I am a songwriter ahead of being a gay man. And my art is far more important to me than my earthly existence. Does that make sense? It's really wanky, isn't it? But I'm not hiding it. When I, I was in bands in my 20s, you know, indie bands, I was sort of playing guitar and the front man of these indie bands. It was all very heterosexual. But, you know, the pronouns were all man singing about a man, you know, and I, I didn't think about that wasn't a choice. You know, I just did because I'm not going to sing about a woman. I'm, I'm 100% gay. You know, I'm not even remotely bisexual. And people would say, this band, you know, he's singing about men. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess I am. You know, the rest of the band were all straight, but I was the front man and, and I, wrote, I wrote the lyrics. So that was, that was that, I guess. We were the indie band with the, with the gay front man. So it's not really a choice. It would just feel really dishonest to sing love songs about women. You know, women are my people. Most of my friends are women, but I'm I'm a gay man, so I'm not going to sing love songs about them.
0: Tom Goss talks about that a lot in his episode about how one has to be authentic. You know, it's it's not that you every song has to be per se about queerness, but just the very nature of just being being who you are, if you're going to ask people to spend parts of their life listening to your music, then it's pretty important that you're authentic about who you are singing it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm not going to, not going to lie to anyone. It's
1: like on the dating sites, you know, I'm on the dating sites now. Um, there's no point, you know, this whole thing, I'll oh, be on your best behavior on the first day, you know, present your best self. That is There's no point. You're wasting everybody's time, right? Just, be yourself all the burps all the farts pick you know, whatever because if that's who you are they're going to discover it eventually and it might be the downfall you know of the relationship because they don't like it so they might as well know from the beginning that you're a bit gross or whatever do you know what I mean just be completely and unapologetically yourself yeah and yeah so in songwriting it's the same isn't it this, the, I, I don't really know I don't really see the point in pretending to be something I'm not we are
0: What does toxic masculinity mean to you? Gender roles. It's, it's the
1: forcing men to only act and be a certain way and to repress anything perceived as soft. And it, you know, it stems from misogyny and homophobia, isn't it? The notion that to be anything feminine is to be lesser, to be less good. To anything perceived as feminine is soft and any softness in a man is, is abhorrent and should be you know, quelled and repressed and this is what leads to the the huge suicide rate in, in men and, you know, because they're just constantly negating themselves in order to fit into society's mould of what it, what's acceptable to be as a man. Tons of blokes end up killing themselves because they can't fucking deal with it anymore or they've got no outlet for it or, you know, the only legitimate emotion as a man is is anger you know that's acceptable even though it's it's frowned upon you've got to control it but it's the only one you're allowed to express if you're too joyful you're is he gay is he you know if you're if you're sad well that's not manly you're not allowed to cry and if you're fearful well you have to man up you know you're not allowed to be scared you're a man men are brave all of that shit you know the only uh, the only emotion where legitimately allowed to feel his anger and and there's nothing wrong with anger it's a perfectly legitimate emotion you know we shouldn't feel shamed
0: about being angry ever i think often the parent of of anger certainly amongst queer culture is sex i think we we use sex often as a way to express our masculinity and that's maybe not the healthiest thing to use sex for I was talking to to the ism in one of our earlier episodes and he was talking about how frustrating it is that within black queer American culture as a black man, there's this perception that he's got to be a thug and a top and a kind of cookholds fantasy and and how frustrating that is. And I imagine you have a similar thing because you are very masculine presenting. You've got dark hair and a beard. And like you say, you go to the gym and that must come with its own frustrations because on, on apps and things like that, people must have a perception of what you are. Absolutely, yeah. And
1: you almost shoot yourself in the foot. You know, I put, you know, I'll take a, a selfie with my T-shirt bumps, you know, after a workout, I'm like, yeah, look, look, looking hot. And then people on the dating sites project all their fantasies onto me that I'm, you know, their, their fantasy top. I'm really not. <laughs> Definitely nobody's fantasy top. And so... Yeah, I'm not shooting myself in the foot. I'd be better off wearing makeup and being a bit fey, but it's it's sort of not within me to do so. And, and absolutely, uh, wearing makeup and being a bit feminine is far braver. Let's be let's be very clear about that. It's far braver to do that than to present as masculine, isn't it?
0: Absolutely, I absolutely agree.
1: Yeah, you're going to get all the repercussions if you walk around
0: with nail varnish. One of the things I find most toxic in queer culture is we still think it's a massive compliment to say to another gay man, you can pass this straight. That's effectively what mask for mask is. Oh, fuck that shit, man.
1: Fuck it so hard up the arse. Call it out. Just like, okay, let's unpack that. Your implication there is, you know, whether you meant it or not, the implication there is that straight is preferable. Uh, Ergo, I'm paying you a compliment. You could pass this straight. Like, fuck off. I don't want to pass as straight. You know, I want to be as gay as I am, which is very gay. So like, take your compliment and shove it.
0: Now, Andrew, what do you think your 15-year-old self would think of the music that you make and think of the man that you've become now?
2: 15.
0: Yeah, I'd like my music a lot.
1: <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, of course you are. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably think it was shit hot, actually. Um, in terms of the man I've become, yeah, actually, I think I'd probably be relieved that I'd I'd be relieved at looking at this 42-year-old bloke who looks like a bit of a geezer, you know, with the the big black beard and the... I've got a few uh, bumps from, you know, lifting heavy things at the gym. But I'm soft as fucking butter, you know. I'm such a softy and I'm very anti-toxic masculinity. And, And any reference to myself as mask is very much satirical, you know. So I'd sort of look at that and I think I'd be relieved that, oh, he's free. He's free of all that shit, all of that pressure to be a man, to be manly. And I'd, I'd, I'd probably heave a massive sigh of relief, like, oh, okay, he came through it.
0: Now, Andrew, for those listening to this podcast, we've been playing clips of some of your songs. But if there was one song of yours that would be the perfect gateway drug into all of your back catalogue and... Some of the stuff you've got just out this year, what would that be?
1: I'm going to say it's the opener on my new album, which is a track called OK. It's about 10 years old now. I've been sitting on that one for a long time. I think it might be the best thing I've ever written. And I, I'm still moved by it now when I listen to it, which is, strikes me as quite remarkable because, you know, I listen yeah, to Yeah, that's amazing. My- Yeah, I listen to a lot of my old stuff and I'm like, I can't feel anything for that anymore. It's just, I've had it, you know, I worked on it for months and I've heard it too many times. And if I've had time off from okay, where I've not heard it in a few months and I hear it again, I'm just, I'm moved by it every time. And I'm like, I wrote that. So fucking proud of that. It's a brilliant song. So yeah, yeah. It's the first track on my new album. Start as you mean to go on and all that.
2: He fractures all in pieces He tells the world there's nothing wrong His house a vault of boxes He crams them full Won't you take me back into your arms? Take me back into your arms Another shrugs and leaves him Convince himself there's nothing wrong His attic full of boxes He tapes them up. Won't you take me back into your arms? Take me back into your arms. Tell me it'll be okay. Tell me it'll be okay. Tell me it'll be okay. okay. Tell me you'll still love me on the rainy days Tell me it'll be okay
0: Andrew, thank you so much for coming on to In the Key of Q. And I'm really looking forward to giving a good listen to your new album, performed under Memory Flowers, uh, called Zoom In, We're All Just Equations. Excellent, good stuff. Many thanks for listening to this episode with Andrew M. Pisanu. Remember to listen to him on the usual streaming platforms under the name Memory Flowers and keep up to date with what he's up to on social media. We have exclusive content over at patreon.com slash in the key of Q. And there you can join other listeners by supporting the show's production costs for as little as five US dollars a month. Tell me what you thought about today's episode with Andrew. The pod's on social media at in the key of Q or email me direct on podcast at in the key and rate and review the show on your podcast provider. It really, really helps. Our theme tune is by the wonderful Pauline Edo at unstoppablemonsters.com and our publicist is the lovely Paul Smith at paulwsmith at gmail.com. Many thanks to Kajane Canther and Murray Lang for their support in making this episode. And the show was presented and produced as ever by me, Dan Hall, and made at Pub Media Consultancy. See you next Tuesday.